Well, have you ever seen a presidential motorcade? I told uh, Brooke, who's not here today, she's at another church in Oklahoma City watching one of her friends be baptized. I told her my intro, because I needed her to hear the sermon if she wasn't going to be here in person to hear it. And I told her the intro was about a motorcade, and she told me, your intros are always very, very random. And I was like, thank you, I appreciate that. Um, But have you ever seen a motorcade delivering a a president or even a king or a queen? I've seen a couple of uh, presidential motorcades uh, while living just my short time in Washington, D.C. They happen all the time. To people there, it it is no big deal. It's like seeing a fire truck go down the road, yet they are breathtaking. If you've ever seen one, you would, you would know this or remember this. In reality, though, a motorcade is just a bunch of flags on a car. It's just a bunch of vehicles all in a row. It's just a security force kind of lining the way, causing other people to stop where they are, but making sure that the principal is able to get there first before anyone else. Uh, but in reality, a motorcade is, is more than just flags and a bunch of cars and stoplights that are all according to this person's maneuvers. The first motorcade I ever saw, or I think the first important motorcade I ever saw, was uh, that of Vice President Dick Cheney's motorcade. I was walking at 7.30 in the morning to get my shirts to the cleaners, where I could then drop them off and then walk 10 minutes down the road to where I could be at work before 8. And the sirens, you could hear them from a long distance starting to come. And everyone knew what to do. Everyone knew that you just stand still and you let it happen. It'll pass. It won't take that long. Uh, But then at that moment... I didn't know what to do, and in fact, I was on the phone with someone, which that early in the morning, it probably means I was on the phone with my mom, walking my stuff to the dry cleaners, probably trying to show off and be like, look, I'm an adult, I'm 20, I get my clothes dry cleaned. But very quickly, you hear these sirens from far off, and there is a gust of wind that sweeps by you. The cars begin sweeping by, the the flags that drape these cars, the vehicles that started out as police cars become SUVs, then massive vans, and then it was clear This was the vice president's limousine with a couple of vehicles tailing him, all barreling down Pennsylvania Avenue towards the White House for surely an important meeting or work to be done. I was on the phone with someone, and my first reaction was, oh, this is pretty cool. And then, uh, and sorry if this makes me look like a giant wimp, but I actually got kind of emotional at watching this motorcade, at at the sheer force and power that this was that this was demonstrating to the world that everyone must stop and watch because someone important was coming through. And then my mom told me to get over it. But in our passage, in our passage this morning, Matthew presents Jesus over and over speaking to people as the one whom they've been waiting for for centuries. Matthew presents Jesus as the one who is bringing fame to himself and telling other people about what he is doing by saying that the Messiah, the one who they've been waiting for for centuries and centuries, has finally arrived. In his kingdom, the one that they've been waiting for, his sheer power is showing up in full force. And what we see from the text is how they react to him actually reveals everything about their heart. Now, I've, I've never seen another presidential motorcade other than a United States president. But I, I would imagine that, that if another motorcade, say, from Burma or, you know, wherever, or Mexico or Canada came by, you would just kind of go, oh, cool, that's cool for them. Like, that means nothing to me. They're not from our country, right? And that would reveal everything that I that hold that, that power in esteem to. This parable, though, the, our parable this morning, shows the people's reaction towards the true king's ar- arrival. 
Uh, now, there are a couple ways we talked briefly, or I talked briefly about uh, parables in general last week. Uh, but there, I think there are, it's helpful to see parables showing themselves or demonstrating themselves to you in one of two ways. You can look at a parable like you might look at a joke, or you might hear a joke. You know, within a joke, if you've ever seen a comedy show or hear something on Netflix or something, within a joke, there's always this, this description and the setting and these characters that are unfolding, but then there's a final punchline that go, okay, that's why he just told me all that stuff, and that's why I'm laughing. There's, there's a punchline to a joke. Or in many ways, you might be able to tell a story in a really emotional way to where people are waiting for the point of the story to happen, and then it finally unfolds itself. That's, that's in many ways how, how a parable might unfold itself to you within the scriptures. There's, there's a punch at the end that is supposed to bring the gravity of the situation all together. Another way to look at a parable is like an onion where the more you peel back things, the more you see and discover all that's there. there. It is clear that this is how some parables are shown in our New Testament as, man, the more you look at them, the more you see, the more you can peel back, the more you can understand. Okay, he is not just merely telling us a lesson about who he is, but he is unfolding a, a full picture of who he is in all of his glory. Now, all that to say, I think the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils is somewhat in between the, the joke and the onion. There's a lot there, but there is a main point to it. There's one, there's one clear, simple truth that Jesus wants us to understand when he tells these people this parable of the, so, or the soils. There's a clear punch here, and that punch is that the kingdom has gracefully and mercifully presented itself, and it's rejected by most and received by some. So the kingdom has gracefully and mercifully presented itself, and it's rejected by most, though received by some. So our parable this morning looks at how the messengers of the kingdom and the Messiah himself will be received. They'll either reject the Messiah or they'll accept him. Now the context of the parable here is that Jesus, uh, Matthew portrays Jesus regularly throughout this part of his accounting of his gospel as Jesus being rejected, Jesus being accused. Jesus, even here, is saying that he is being rejected on the regular. He's responding to people over and over again who have rejected him. And he says that you are rejecting me for one of two reasons. Your heart has not been opened by God to receive me. So there is a, there is a point of sovereignty happening here that under God's good reign, he hasn't allowed certain people to understand who he is, but also it is by their own volition, their own accounting, their, their, own, uh, their own practice of rejection that he is saying, you're rejecting me because you're rejecting me. It's not my fault that you're rejecting me. Now, before getting into the particulars of the parable, I think it would be helpful for you to hear about some details within the parable. So if you're using an outline in the back of your bulletin, there are two main sections. One is about the details that I think will be helpful to see and then after that, there are certain uh, reactions that we see uh, people having towards the Messiah coming. But a couple of details before we get into the, the passage itself. There, there are a couple of characters that you need to know about. Jesus used, a parable is something that you use commonly understood or held things, and you're teaching a lesson, or you're instructing people using those common things. So in this case, he's using a field, he's using seeds, he's talking about a sower here. Now the sower that Jesus is presenting to these people, the sower is God. God is doing that work. And the soil is the heart of man. So you see a sower who is God acting, throwing seed out into the soil, and that soil 
is representative of your and my heart. So there's one sower, and there's a couple of hearts that we see in the passage. So those are the characters. Now, there's a backdrop here. If you've ever seen you know, a Broadway show or a movie that takes place on a stage, or some of you might um, do different shows at your high schools, there's, there's typically a common background that stays consistent throughout the whole show. Or the lighting basically same, stays the same. So as you see that, that background, that is supposed to uh, create in your mind an understanding of the setting that is happening there that doesn't seem to change throughout that. So there is a backdrop here within this parable. And the first part of that backdrop is that God is completely sovereign in administering all the seeds that he is casting out. So there's a backdrop of sovereignty that is happening within this passage. He is sowing the seed or throwing the seed wherever he wants to do. Now, in part, this backdrop doesn't just show us God's power and sovereignty within the text, but also it shows us his grace because he is casting the seed everywhere. He's not just identifying one particular kind of soil and only planting it there, but he's, he's throwing, if those of you who are farmers, you know, you have incredible machines that do this. I've ridden on them. I've seen them. It's amazing. They are very precise in what they're doing. This would be the wrong way to sow a field, right? It's like you give this to an eight-year-old, a pound of seed, and they just throw it all over the place, right? That, that is the gracious and merciful work of God where he is sowing his seed everywhere. That's the backdrop there. He is sovereignly sowing his seed everywhere. But he's doing this through using a tool. God is sowing the seed, and that seed is clear, both in our passage, but also in Jesus's interpretation of his parable. The seed there is God's word. What what God is sowing, what God is throwing out, is his very precious word. You and I would see this as the scriptures that we have today. We see this as being the word from verse 11, 17, and 19. The tool that God is using to bring about a harvest for his own glory is his very word. But there is a final issue here of why this is happening. This is, this is the gravity of the text. This is the tension of the text. This is why Jesus is saying this. The contextual circumstances of the parable is Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God has come among men and women, but some thought that the coming of the kingdom would mean that God would finally execute his judgment on evil, shattering ungodliness forever. They thought when God would show up incarnate in the person of Jesus, they thought our enemies will finally absorb the very wrath of God. And yet the issue here is we see God graciously and mercifully throwing his word at all of those wicked people. According to Jesus, the kingdom arrives like a farmer planting a seed where the wicked are not swept away, but are actually offered life. They're offered forgiveness. That's the issue that we see here in this text, where the emphasis of this parable is within the nature and character of the sower. It is, it is important. We will do so in a long time today. We will look at the particular soils and go, what about that does God want me to know and understand? But you need to first know and understand that there is a nature and character that is being presented to all of us about who God is. Friends, see the grace of God bringing his grace to the world, but see in the text the prosperity or peril in the soil's reaction towards the receiving of the word. There is the grace and glory of God, but also see the either prosperity or parable in your reaction to the word. Now this parable is given to us by Matthew in two parts. Uh, The parable is described uh, in verses 1 through 9, 
And then Jesus gives his own explanation of the parable in verses, 11, uh, verses 18 through 23. And today, uh, today I want to look at both of those sections together, since it's clear that he's talking about the same thing, both Jesus' telling and his explanation. So, the big question from this passage is, if God is sowing his word, what are people's reaction towards the kingdom arriving in their lives? What are the people's reaction towards the king and his kingdom arriving in their lives? There is a, an initial reaction, number one. The, reaction, the first reaction is the first section of soil, the first group of people, the first hearts, refuse the word. They refuse the truth in faith. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4 of the passage. It says, And he sowed, and some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. The context says Jesus speaking to these people from a boat. You might see the couple of verses in front of that. And you might think that's an obscure place to be, but he's, he, he would be out maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 feet on this boat where his voice would be able to carry across the waters because so many people were now wanting to hear this man speak. They were rejecting him. They were affirming him. They were responding to him, but they were definitely listening to him. And so he got in a boat and is speaking to them so that his voice would carry and people would be able to hear. Ironically, his first group is saying that it falls on a soil that refuses his very word. And he describes a group that is unresponsive to the seed, to the word. In verse 4 and also in verse 19, he vividly describes what it looks like to have an unresponsive heart toward God. The seed fell beside the road in the hardened soil, and the soil was so unresponsive that birds later came and ate up the seed. They They were left on the table, and so someone else would have their day. This describes a person who refuses to hear God's word. The the word is clearly shared, gracefully shared. The word is true, but this person just, frankly, doesn't care. They refuse the word. Now, you can imagine this person living a life that has become more and more hardened to God's truth to the point that this person is no longer apathetic, but actually rejects the message entirely. The, the church that I previously was at for a couple of years in Albuquerque, uh, ever since we left, they have started a building project. And then right, right before, they were, a month before they were going to start, COVID hit, so there's all kinds of financial stuff and different things going on. And why do you need a bigger building if no one's going to be there for a little bit, right? So they've, they've been holding off on this building project, and they are, they are now ready to begin their building project. And they, their property is 10 acres large. They use five acres of it, and so they have five acres left of just blank Albuquerque, blah, dirt. Nothing grows there. Not even cactus wants to grow there, right? Yet, the city passed a new regulation one year ago that says, anytime on your whole property you have some kind of construction project, you have to seed all of your property with grass. Now, in Albuquerque, the idea of seeding any property with grass is a waste. Nothing will grow there unless you continually dump all kinds of water on that. And that wouldn't be a good use of church money, would it? So these guys are legally having to throw the seed out on a property that they know it will not take root, and they are just waiting for the birds or whatever to come and take it away, but they have to do so. That picture of a a hopeless spreading of, I'm doing this and I know it won't work, right? It'd be like me trying to plant wheat right here on this carpet. You would laugh at me and you would say, you do not know what you're doing. And I would say, I know that. Here we have the picture, though, of what it looks like for a heart to reject God's word. There is, there's just nothing there that ever wants to take it in. This person is just like that. The seed falls on top. 
It never penetrates the ground in its perfect pickings for the bird. It never breaks through. This person is callous. This person is hardened. This person is unresponsive. And in this, Jesus teaches the disciples not to expect a changed life when their heart is unchanged. He's teaching them, don't expect a changed life when the truth goes out, when your heart is unchanged. They want the kingdom to change the world, but the kingdom is falling, he is saying, on concrete soil. And so the birds, or other people say the birds are representative of Satan and his demons, the birds are snatching this truth up before it can take root, knowing that it will never take root. So Jesus here is warning the disciples in his first soil, don't expect everyone to embrace the kingdom. Sometimes when the message is rejected, we're tempted to change, uh, we're tempted to want to change the sower or the seed. If we just have a different avenue, a way of presenting the gospel differently to other people, then maybe it will take root. What Jesus is saying, outside of, an, outside of a changed heart, the seed will never be absorbed. It's bad soil. It's a bad heart. So how's the first soil receiving the word? These hearts, according to Jesus, refuse him in his true kingdom. That's the first reaction towards God's word going out. The second reaction here is that these hearts have a superficial faith. So the first one is refusal. The second reaction is superficial. These hearts or the soil has a superficial faith. Look at verses five and six of your text. It says, and others, seeds, others fell on rocky places where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. Verse 6, and when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Now look at verses 20 and 21 further down in the chapter. And, uh, and the one on whom the seed was sown into the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Verse 21, yet it has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Jesus here presents a second receptor of his word that is a heart that has a superficial or shallow faith. This heart looks promising because of its impulsiveness, its immediate reaction. It looks good because it responded quickly, you know, like a chia pet or miracle grow. They seem to accept the word, and you can imagine this person as a at a modern evangelistic rally, raising their hands, saying a rehearsed prayer, and leaves pumped up. They had a joyously respond, or they joyously responded to someone's call to be a Christian, and had even done things to make it look like they were in the fold. They responded to a gospel call, but under the light, under the trial, they proved to not persevere. An emotional embrace of the gospel is all that they had. An emotional embrace of the gospel. And yet later on, they left the faith, or they fall away. The camp high has dampened. The zeal on Monday is empty by Friday. They, they buy all the Bible studies, but quickly leave the pages empty. They spring up, they give themselves to Jesus, and then they never follow him. And when trial comes, whether that trial is an affliction or persecution, this person is found to be without faith altogether. And it happens all the time. We see this happening all the time, don't we? Maybe this is a picture of your children that a lot of you wrestle through. I was there when they said that. I know the house that they were raised in. They heard me. And yet here we have their heart on rocky soil. Or your best friend. Or your spouse. 
Or friend, is this a picture of you? You can recount years ago or months ago, there was a joy there that after trial or persecution, you know that that faith is gone. What happened to the zeal? What happened to the fire, the spring flowers? Matthew records Jesus teaching that some will look promising but later die off because their faith was circumstantial. Friend, maybe your faith was emotional rather than true. It was rootless, according to this passage. Times were good, and so God looked real good. But when times became bad, God was proven to not be your foundation. Your soil was superficial or rocky, not strong. It's easy to love God in the sweet times, but it takes faith, or it takes trust to love God when the world seems rough or against you, where it's easy to claim Christ as your Savior, your Messiah, when you don't really need or hope of his deliverance or sustenance. The faith of the second and rocky soil was rootless and circumstantial. And you might react to this and go, wait a minute, that doesn't seem very fair. That's not fair. The word went out, a flower sprung up, it's the sun that was hot, it was persecution that was intense, it's not my fault. How can it be fair for this soil to go from unbelieving to believing and then back to unbelieving? Friends, read God's word with precision, not emotion or desire. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say that they were a believer and then became an unbeliever. He says that their faith was shallow from the very beginning, that the heart that received the good seed was bad soil. Well, uh, Brooke and I lived in Edmond. We lived in Edmond before we got married, but I had a house uh, that I was very uh, proud to present to her. And one of the things that I wanted to present to her upon our wedding was a really big yard with lots and lots of grass. And so I started asking someone within the church who had an amazing grassed yard. I said, where do you get your seed from? And he goes, oh, I, I know a seed guy. He's down in the city. So I drove down there, down in the city, looked at all the prices. This better be good seed because it is really expensive. And so I went up to the guy and he, he asked where I lived. And I told him I lived in Southeast Edmond. He goes, okay, tell me what street you live on. And I told him 143rd Street. And he was like, oh, yeah, this seed won't work for you. You have sandy soil. It'll never work. And I was like, what? First of all, you don't know me. Second of all, I water really well. And he goes, no, whatever you buy here, it won't work for you. What you need is new soil. So what did I do? Instead of spending money on my new bride, I bought dirt for her, right? And that's why we had to move. All right, so the parable's second soil... (laughs) Oh, man. The The parable's second soil gives... Um, an unsurprising response. The soil was shallow. It was rocky. There was no place for roots to be put down, so it dies under persecution. The the lesson here is that this soil, it needed to be remade. It it needed to have new soil brought in. There There was never going to be anything that could grow in there because of its rockiness. Now, one thing that is fascinating to me is that within these first couple of soils, we see two examples of worldliness. The first one that is hardened, the second one that is rocky, they may look similar, but they are different. One worldly life rejects the gospel, the cynical, callous heart, the other worldly life seems to embrace the gospel, though disingenuously. And guys, here's the thing, hearing the gospel never got anyone to heaven because the Messiah is looking for what he described at the end of chapter 12. Just hearing the word isn't enough. 
Someone who does the will of the Father is what God calls this soil to do. Someone who responds to the gospel in true faith will delight in glory forever. Just having soil isn't enough. Just hearing God's word isn't enough. Just acting in a certain way isn't enough. Now, all of this brings up a huge issue here. What is faith? If it looked like the second soil, the first one you can discount and say, they clearly never had what would look like faith. What does faith look like according to the second soil or the third and the fourth? Faith, doctrinally, theologically, in understanding, faith is your response to God's work in your heart. Your faith is your response to God's work in your heart. Faith is the voluntary change in the mind of the sinner. Think about it. It's the voluntary change of your mind where you would turn to Christ. Being essentially a change of mind, it involves a change of view, a change of feeling, a change of purpose, a change of direction, and a change of action. You could, you could categorize, and you've heard me doing this before, you could categorize faith into three ingredients, three succeeding ingredients. I use the acronym CAT, K-A-T, not C-A-T, K-A-T. The first part of faith is you have to know who Christ is. Who is God in Christ? You have to know that. You have to know the truth of God's revelation, objective reality of salvation provided by Christ. You need to know Christ. That's the, that's the root of your faith. The second thing is you have to assent, or your faith needs to be ascending. You can think of this emotionally. You are ascending towards Christ, to the revelation of God's power and grace in Jesus Christ in need of his grace and assenting to him. This is, this is actually the extent of where the second soil is. So you would imagine that the second soil know who, knows who Christ is, might even make movements towards Christ altogether, but they're missing this last ingredient, K, knowledge, A, assenting, and last one, T, is trust. Trust in Christ as Lord and Savior by surrendering your soul recognizing that you are guilty and defiled to Christ's governance and receive and appropriating Christ's work as your source of pardon and sanctification. What it looks like to trust Christ is actually understanding that he is your source of forgiveness and is forever your source of sanctification, knowing who he is, going to, who, to where he is, and trusting in him completely. Now, I said this example out loud to no one in particular yesterday, so no one told me if it was a good illustration. But imagine that you are wanting to take money and put it in the bank, right? You're taking money and you put it in the bank physically. Well, you would have to know that that bank actually can hold on to your money. You might even want to see the vault that they put your money in. How can I know that you can hold on to my money? Are you a good bank? Do you have a large vault? Can can anyone break into it whenever they want? Can you hold on to the money? So you know a little bit about that bank, or you know a lot about that bank. You have a knowledge of what that bank will do. But second, that your money just doesn't get there magically. You actually have to bring your money to the bank. You have to give it to a teller or someone there and say, here is my money. Lock it away. But then lastly, you actually have to walk away from that appointment, them having your money. You have to, you have to trust them, finally. Like, why do some of us not have our money in one place or another? Because we actually at our root, don't trust it there, and we trust it somewhere else. I don't know if that's helpful. Someone tell me later if that's a terrible example, and I'll never use it again. But what faith is, is knowing who Christ is, knowing what he has done, going to him as the only savior for your life, 
entrusting in him with your soul forever and ever. That's what it looks like to have faith. And what faith continually looks like is that regular practice of reminding yourself in times of trial or persecution who Christ is, what he has done for me, why I can hope in him forever. We sing about it and we confess it here. We see it revealed to us in his word. If your confession, friend, of Christ, however you express it, if your confession of Christ, and I'm talking about all of you personally here, does not come from a deep inner conviction of your sin, does not come from a deep sense of lostness, does not include a tremendous desire for God to cleanse you and purify you and lead you, if your confession of Christ does not involve a great hunger to ascend to God, trusting in him with your whole life and willingness to suffer for his namesake, then you have no root. And friend, it is only a matter of time. And a lot of you can testify to it. If I didn't have Christ, I wouldn't have survived that. Or it seemed like I died in that moment because I wasn't trusting in Christ to deliver me from this anguish. Something will come along and burn you up inside unless your faith is rooted in the very person in the work of Jesus. Friend, call out to God if you find yourself in this second soil. Call out to God to change your heart, to convict you of your sin, to call out to Jesus to show himself to you as Lord, for only God can break up that stony heart. A seed will not come along and make your soil good. And if you've got that kind of heart, you need to pray and ask the Lord to do for you what he promises to do and what he said to Israel that he would do for them. He said, I will take away your stony heart and I will give you a heart of flesh. Friend, heed the warning of the second soil. Life will be awful. And in Christ, rooted in him, you will thrive. There is a third reaction here of the soil, this, this third reaction. If the first one is refusal, the second one is superficial, the third one is commingling. The soil is commingling with other things within the soil. There's a third soil here that Jesus describes in this parable, a third heart, you could say. Look at verse 7. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. We see the explanation of this in uh, verse 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. We're shown a picture of a heart that is co-mingling with the world, a distracted or comparing heart. Friends, you all here, or those watching online, please hear the instruction that Jesus has from this particular set of soil more than anything else. The seeds from a gracious, merciful planter goes out and lands in an area that is among thorns. You hear the message of the gospel, but there are also alternative or substitute desires or seeds choking off that faith. The ground isn't hardened. The ground isn't superficial. But the soil seeds God's gracious word as a threat to competing interests around it. You apparently respond to the gospel, yet there are other hopes in your heart that choke out the truth of the gospel. The parable has you ultimately shown to be faithless and without hope in this world. 
And there are two things that the passage is clear on that chokes you out from embracing the kingdom of heaven wholly. The first one is there clearly in verse 21 and 22, or 22, the worry of the world. You are preoccupied with this life. You have anxiety about this life. You are consumed by your circumstances of the here and now. Things that, things that to the world look really good, but in reality, compare nothing to the kingdom of heaven. You need to be happy with more stuff, and so you go after it. You need to be happy with health or avoiding sickness, so you pursue it without pursuing the Lord at all. You need to be happy with your family being preeminent. You need to be happy with your work making you known as legendary amongst people in the town. You need people to know you even after you die. You need people to know that you haven't ruined your family's name, the family name that's on the front of the farm, or that adorns a business card, or that is the last name on a child's name tag. You are preoccupied with this life to such a degree that you cannot focus on the Word of God revealing to you the person of Jesus and the kingdom of God. His schedule, his job description, his parking spot, his lineage is no match to yours. That's what the soil brings out. And what the parable shows is that only one of you will die. One of you will choke to death. And it will not be God in his kingdom. It will be everlasting. My friends, I have seen this passage coming for months. I've dreaded studying these particular verses because I know, and I hate it, I know that there are many of you here today who have a professed faith, but no real faith. You are choking yourself to death when the kingdom of God is offered to you. Your heart is within the thorns that appear to you like roses. And there's a second thing that keeps the soil from embracing God, not just the worry of the world, but there is a false promise of riches in obsession with wealth. The deceitfulness of wealth is Jesus's phrase. He's telling us that worldly comfort and wealth is deceitful because it doesn't deliver the satisfaction that it promises. It's like, it's like a mirage of happiness leaving you dying of thirst in the desert. You might say, if I could get ahead on this, then my life would open up. If I lived in that place, then we'd, we'd have so many friends. It'd be a different circumstance. If, if they knew how I've financially suffered, they'd be nicer to me. If she knew all that I did to pay for this, she'd thank me. The deceitfulness of wealth. But the Son of God says himself, he says that your true faith, if your true faith is in wealth, it's deceitful, it's devastating, because it'll strangle you to death. One of the most popular apps uh, that's come about in the last couple of years is the financial investing app called Robinhood. And one of the things that Robinhood did is they, they regularly send reminders to people on how many times they open that app every day. And the average time someone opens a financial advising app and a financial investing app, the average is over 200 times a day. My friends, when it comes to Jesus' instructive parable, when it comes to his summoning word, the seed that goes toward you in grace, and as it brings his kingdom's arrival, there are some of you who will miss it because you love your family more than God. 
Because you love your kids more than God. Because you love your calendar more than God. Your possible retirement more than God. Your reputation more than God. Your health and hobbies more than God. Your hate towards other people's success more than God. And God says those things will choke you to death. Preoccupation with this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choked out the root of faith. And friends, the tragedy of this parable, both on your heart and mine, is that the thing that chokes us out, it appears like an opportunity. A child, a spouse, a house, a friend, but it's a thorn. Later, now hear this, later, Jesus says that his kingdom will come a second time. If you don't like how it shows up the first time, he basically says, wait till the second. And at that time, everything that is distracted by the world from his glory and his face, Jesus says later, all of those things will burn. They will not survive. Notice the glory of the sower of the seed. And friend, turn to him for true satisfaction. Whatever you are placing your hope in, recognize that it should not compete with the kingdom of God, and it does not have to. The satisfaction that we have in the person of Christ unfolds itself to conquer everything that might be in front of us. Ask him, friend, if you find yourself in this third soil, ask him to give you a heart that unites itself to his glory. There's a fourth and final reaction that Jesus portrays, and that is one of fruitful. There is one that refuses his goodness, There is one that is superficial towards his love. There is one that is distracted and commingling with other things of the world. And this last one is the fruitful one. Once someone realizes that Jesus is talking about the word being preached, the word going out, the word being proclaimed, it is not difficult to see the first three soils as being about those where the word takes no root. There's no profession of faith. There's no profession that was only superficial or there was a profession of faith that was overcome by the world's pleasures and yet here we have in God's grace a fourth soil. It's the only soil which is believed or which has belief within it. Now friend, don't don't be confused here. There are people who will read this parable and see that it describes actually three kinds of Christians and only one kind of non-Christian. They see the first soil, the one that rejects it. That's the only, Christian, that's the only non-Christian here. The other ones are like, like baby or infant Christians or what is commonly known as a nominal Christian where they're a, they're a Christian in name only. They have professed Christ, but they're just not really a follower of who he is, but they could still be seen as a Christian. This in no way is presented by Jesus. There are three deniers or refusers of his good word And there is one receiver of his grace. So don't do that. Jesus has already offered and defined for you what a believer is. One who does the will of him who sent me. That's what a believer is. Jesus talked about that in the previous chapter. A believer is the one who does the will of the Father. And in this final soil, in verses 8 and 23... We see the fruitful heart, what it actually looks like, what a believer looks like. This is the person who hears, who obeys, who lives, and blesses others by the kingdom's message. 
A believer is one who hears, obeys, and lives by blessing others with the kingdom's message. In our eyes, one thing and one thing only marks the good soil from the rest. In our eyes, how we see someone acting as a believer is their fruitfulness. And so the call here is clear. It's simple. It doesn't need to be gone into for hours and hours. The call here is clear. Hear the word, friend. Obey the word. Be guided by the word. And through that, have the word increase God's glory through you. Now notice that Jesus doesn't say that the good ground is without thorns and rocks. All right, so we see thorns in other areas. We see rocks in other areas. We see hardened paths along the way. All he's doing here is describing how they receive the word. It is not saying that if your life is in Christ, if you place your life in Christ's good hands, that you will never go through a thorny day or a rocky season. We are not sinless in this life, and our circumstances aren't without deep trials, but believers bear fruit when God takes hold of them by grace. They hear and they understand where God has captured them. They are guided by his gospel, their will, their affections, their desires, their actions flow from a transformed, regenerated heart. Now to conclude, indeed, their proportions of the parable are staggering, aren't they? One in four alone accept the message of the Messiah, the message of the kingdom of heaven. This parable reminds us that individuals will respond to the message of God's word differently, and their response is based on what their heart is. That's what Jesus, if you haven't caught on by now, that's what Matthew is demonstrating Jesus doing over and over and over again in the book of Matthew. It is your heart that is the issue here. What your heart is will show the fruit that God has given you. The disciples expected a mass conversion and following of the Messiah when he came. Yet Jesus in this parable reveals a shocking truth. As a matter of fact, he doesn't say, as a matter of fact, he says individuals will respond differently to my message. It won't be that the message is different. It won't be that the messenger is different. It will be that the hearts of the hearers are different. And so they will respond to the message of Messiah differently. And in that last place, let us learn and hear from this parable that there is only one evidence of hearing the word rightly, and that evidence is bearing fruit. The fruit here spoken of is the fruit that the Spirit of God gives his people. Repentance towards God, faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ, holiness in the life and character of the believer, prayerfulness, humility, charity, spiritual mindedness. These are the these are the satisfactory proofs that the seed of God that the seed of God's word is doing its proper work in your soul. Without such proofs our religion is in vain. However high our profession may be, it is no better than sounding brass and tinkling cymbals, the Psalms will say. Christ has said, I have chosen you and ordained you that you would go out and bring forth fruit. So the parable provides a sober reminder that even the most enthusiastic outward response to the gospel offers no guarantee that one is a true disciple. Only the tests of time, perseverance under difficult circumstances, and the avoidance of the idolatries of wealth and anxiety over earthly concerns, and above all, the presence of appropriate fruit consistent with obedience to God's will can prove a profession to be genuine. But friends, do not overlook the reality that it is God's good work who turns up the soil from death to life that makes that soil then produce great fruit. So receive the word. Focus on the Lord. Cherish him for who he is. Know him, ascend to him, and trust him. 
And what his word says is that he promises that fruit will come through you. And we listen to this message in the soil today of that the Lord Christ himself brings us. We must ask ourselves, what is the soil of our hearts? I trust you can look in and then look to him and say, you and you alone are the desire of my life and I will bear fruit of your glory and by your grace. May it be of us. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the intensity of the message that you have given us from your word. We thank you that you used common things to help us understand of your kindness that spreads the seed, of your grace that brings it to us, of your son's accomplishment on the cross that offers us forgiveness of sin. Lord, we pray that you would bear fruit through us. God, we ask that those who have a hardened soil or a rocky soil or a thorny soil would see you. God, we pray that you would go toward them, turn over their hearts, regenerate their souls, and may they turn to you. And Lord, may we all profess and proclaim your goodness and grace to us. We pray this in Jesus' everlasting name. Amen.